I ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You find a moment, take a moment there to find this book in your Bible. I have the advantage of already having that marked here in my Bible laying open to it. But uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians, and then you're going to come to First and Second Timothy. But First Timothy chapter 6, a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus. You find your place there, and let me ask you this question. I trust you're listening or looking at the screen right now. How many times in your life have you thought, if I do right, Life will go right, therefore everything's going to be all right. You ever think like that? If I do right, life's going to go right. And therefore everything else is just going to be all right. Well, whether this is true depends on what we've decided life going right means. When we think about doing right and we think about life being all right, basing that on everything going right, we have often in our minds some kind of expectation of what success is, some kind of dream of what will make our life complete, what it will take for us to be happy, stay happy, and cling to happiness. And what I want to ask you to do with me this morning is to think about what it looks like for you to to understand whether or not life is right what is it what is the definition of life going right for you this is graduation season very different than any year we've experienced in the past but high school graduates we've recognized today and given honor to their hard work. Uh, College graduates last weekend, Pastor Vic uh, paid tribute to those who have worked so hard to uh, finish college. We think of ages, high school students. We think of college students in their 20s. I mean, some of you are uh, later in life and you're finishing degrees as well. I shout out to Steve Simmons, even as old and feeble as he is, uh, that he has uh, completed his MBA. And so congratulations, Steve. Uh, on your graduation as well. Well, as graduates in whatever phase of life we're in, we have this thought of what the future's gonna be, uh, what our dreams are, what we're going after, what our expectations are, where our ambition will take us. But it's not just graduates, it's for every season of life. We establish in our mind what life being right is. We define it. Stay with me here real close for just a second. Let me talk to you, especially as followers of Christ, as Christians, those who would say today, yes, I raise my hand, I am a Christian. In the Christian world, there is an attraction to a particular way of thinking. There's an attraction to a particular doctrine. It may be spoken out loud. It may not be spoken out loud. It may be something that's held down deep in us. And it's this thought. 
If I do right by God, God will do right by me. If I do right by God, God will do right by me. And there's this, there is this attraction and there is this uh, pervading thought that can creep in to where uh, as long as I follow the rules, as long as I kind of go along with what God says, as long as morally I do what is right, or as long as I do the Christian life, then there's going to be success in this life. There's going to be more in this life. And the doctrine that is so tied to that is what has become known as the prosperity gospel. It's this thought that if I do right and I go after God, God is going to give me more. Uh, God is going to bless me with even material possessions. It can become this uh, lived out doctrine that we would call prosperity gospel or it can be underneath in the way we deal with what life brings to us. And many times we can be lured into a religion that is evaluated by returns. Or we can be lured into a religion where our devotion is dependent on the dividends. Uh, If I do right by God, well, then God's going to do right by me. And the trouble with that is, as graduates, as people looking out there in the future, or those of us that are just trying to live life, that is extremely controlled by circumstances. And we find ourselves basing our life being right on how our circumstances play out. Well, I want to offer to you today something far better than a life conditioned on the dependence of our circumstances. Let me say that again. I want to offer to you, regardless of age, regardless of season of life, I want to offer you today something far better than a life conditioned on the dependence of our circumstances. I want to speak to you again on the subject of contentment. Contentment. We started this last week, and I want to answer this question. What's to gain by a life of contentment? What's to gain by a life of contentment? Look with me in 1 Timothy. I hope you're there. Chapter 6. I want to begin reading in verse 6 and just read about four verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul's writing here in a context of uh, how people deal with riches how they go after things in life, what motivates, how is life evaluated. And he also speaks here about false teachers. 
Just prior to verse 6, he's speaking about characteristics of those that are teaching false doctrines. And he walks through some characteristics of false doctrine, and he gets to verse 5. And the last phrase of verse 5 is is that they are robbed of the truth, and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's that whole phrase that I started with. The thought that uh, godliness is the means to some kind of gain, especially material gain, financial gain, some kind of level of success that the world will offer. And the way to get to that is to live a godly life. Well, what is this godliness that he speaks of? The word there for godliness is the Greek word eusebia. It's a word that means religion or piety. It is doing things that have to do with God. It is, it's, it is practicing the ways of God and practicing the works of God and following the rules of God, the laws of God. It is our religious life that in many ways involve things like worshiping and giving and serving and uh, reading the Word and building our life based on what uh, is in the Word. It is being like God. It's God-likeness. It's godliness. And Paul points out here that there is a way that godliness can be practiced, but it is based, it is it's pursued by the thought that it's going to lead to some dividends. It's going to lead to some returns. It's going to be our strategy for financial gain. Paul flips it around here almost suddenly, and, and he says, but godliness, and, and he, he, he doesn't do away with it. He doesn't say it's wrong. He says, yes, godliness, yes, good. That's, that's a good pursuit. But here is what is real gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment, this word uh, contentment here comes from a Greek word that was one of the favorite words of the philosophical world that Paul was living in. It was a Stoic uh, word, uh, the Stoic beliefs uh, use this uh, Greek word that is translated for us content or contentment. And in the just non-religious world, it was a, a word that simply meant life independent of circumstances. And there was this mind work that would go on where people would try to uh, meditate and get into this state in their mind where they were not dependent on uh, circumstances affecting them. It was a life completely removed from circumstances. And it was based on the ability to find self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. That kind of a, uh, maybe what would even be uh, considered... A, a, affiliated with new age thought today just dig down deep look inside of yourself pull yourself up by the bootstraps and find a way to not let the world affect you but Paul borrows borrows that word and he is not offering a life of self-sufficiency Paul writes about contentment from the standpoint of Christ sufficiency And he's saying that godliness with contentment is great gain. A contentment that is not based on self-sufficiency, but is based on Christ-sufficiency. Let me give you some definitions. Take just a little bit of time to make sure you understand when I'm speaking of the word contentment, what I 
am referring to. When we are talking about contentment defined in similar ways, here's a 1648 definition. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs gave this definition in 1648 of Christian contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, that sounds like a 1648 definition, doesn't it? Uh, it, But let me just read it. Let it kind of just sit on your mind just a little bit there. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. John Stott defined Christian contentment as the... uh, the frame of spirit independent of external things or internal self, but dependent on Christ's sufficiency. And Warren Wearsby always has a way of making it clear and simple, says that contentment is, Christian contentment is an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. As I think over these days and weeks about Christian contentment, learning what it means, trying to just see, God, what are you doing in my life? Observing others who seem to have contentment. Observing the Apostle Paul and his contentment. Again, I love what Jeremiah Burroughs says. He says, that to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. And so how do we, how do we come to this place where we are uh, living out this virtue of contentment regardless of our circumstances? What's to gain in Christian contentment? Remind you, last week we said that contentment is enjoyable, contentment is possible, and contentment is doable. And the fact that contentment is enjoyable and it is possible through Christ and it's something that we learn over time. Let me answer this question for in these last few minutes. of What's to gain from contentment? Number one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but maybe you could grab a pen and a piece of paper and, and jot down these uh, phrases and it's, it, it's what we gain from contentment. Number one, contentment drains comparison of its poison. Uh, Contentment drains comparison of its poison. Someone has said that comparison is the contentment killer. I think we we flip that around and let contentment be the comparison killer. It, It is what will take the very poison of comparison out of our Life. You know what comparison does? Comparison leads us to be tempted to breaking the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment of God's ten commandments are thou shalt not covet. 
And the, the opposite of contentment is covetousness. It is wanting more. It is seeing things. And we say, I've got to have that. And I won't be satisfied until I have that. We practice covetousness in our heart. And that, that comes from comparing. We look and we say, well, what about them? And what about me? And how, how shouldn't I have that? Or if life was fair, wouldn't that come my way? I love how Paul deals with comparison. In Philippians chapter 1, he talks about how there were those that were preaching the gospel around him and the kingdom was advancing. And he looked and he saw their popularity and he saw how the kingdom was advancing while he was in prison or under house arrest. And Paul says, some are preaching it out of good motives and the kingdom is advancing. Good. Some are preaching the gospel and they've got the wrong motives. But here's how you see he was content. He says, it doesn't matter. Philippians chapter 1, he says, wrong motives are good motives. Nevertheless, the kingdom's advancing. And he, and he shows us that the poison of comparison was not taking effect in his heart. And I believe it was because in his life he had learned the secret of contentment. Number two, contentment confronts disappointment with the sovereignty of God. Contentment confronts disappointment with the sovereignty of God. In our life, we deal with disappointment. We have expectations. We have the way we think things are going to work out. And when they don't measure up, we experience what we call disappointment. We're let down. We're, we're, we're troubled. We're bothered. When we have in our life this frame of spirit of contentment, what we do is we draw on the attribute of God that is his sovereignty. And as we deal with the battle of disappointment, we, we confront it with this character trait of God, this attribute of God, and God is sovereign. Disappointment for us is often based on our definition of how life should be, where the sovereignty of God is based on his design for what is best. And so we look at that and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue contentment, even though it's not measuring up to what I thought it would be, trusting in the sovereignty of God. There are 10,000 times 10,000 ways that God is working in every situation of our life. Contentment gives God room in our spirit to work out the plans that he's carrying out. Contentment, number three, breaks the stronghold of besetting sins. Contentment breaks the stronghold of besetting sins. When you think about sin in your life, aren't there those sins that you feel like, that's where I keep failing again and again? As someone said, uh, this kind of an old saying is that the uh, the cows are going to always run through where the fence is down. And there are weaknesses in our life. There are besetting sins. There are things where the enemy comes again and again and again because he knows right there is a weakness. Here's what contentment does. Contentment breaks the hold of those besetting sins. Contentment says no uh, God is in charge. He's sufficient. I don't have to give in to that sin over and over and over again. And we discover weakness there. And what we find out is that when we 
pursue contentment. God does his greatest work in our area of weakness. Our areas of weakness. Hebrews chapter 12, he says, uh, let us run the race that is set out before us. He says, throw off every sin that besets you and run the race marked out for you. Here's what that says to me. There is a race marked out for you. There's a race marked out for you. There's a race marked out for me. And I can't compare my race to yours. I can't compare my weaknesses to yours. I look at God and say, God, you're in charge. You're in control. And to run this race, Lord, I need you to work right here. And I'm trusting that you're going to do it. And it has a way of breaking the strongholds in our life when we find ourselves resting in who God is and what he can do. Number four, what's there to gain in contentment? It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Number four, contentment orients our passions toward eternal things. Uh, contentment orients our passions toward eternal things. Verse 7, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. What a great verse. Uh, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If you can, there is no question, you can memorize that verse. It just flows, it just works. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. What Paul is saying is that when we live this life, for us to build our life's view of what is right based on temporary things, we're just we're, we're setting ourselves up for a definite loss. Because everything that you might gain materially, when it comes to eternity, can't take it with you. Someone has described our possessions simply as luggage left at the gate. Luggage left at the gate. All of our life we can spend just packing our suitcases with things, packing our suitcases with things, and we think we're strong and mighty and able. We find our security and everything that we've got in the case, but when it comes to the end of life, we can't take it with us. It's not the first time this verse has been quoted in a sense. In Job, we have Job saying in that Old Testament book, naked I came from the womb and naked I shall depart. Kind of a funny statement. John Stott says that life is a pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. We came here with nothing and we will go into eternity with nothing physical that we can take with us. And so to live a life of contentment, the gain is, is that we turn our focus off of things that will rust and decay. And our love, our passion, our, our peace, our joy rest in who we what we have in Christ. And those are eternal gifts and eternal things. Number five, what's the gain from contentment? Christian contentment calms the anxiety of a worried heart. Christian contentment calms the anxiety of a worried heart. Maybe in these days you have battled with anxiety. You've battled with worry. 
just a reminder to you that as we pursue contentment, yes, live a godly life, but live it not with the motive of gaining something. Live it with the motive of God's in charge. I can seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto me. He says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. He kind of narrows life down to being the necessities. He's saying, we're going to be good here because of what Christ has done. We know that we will be safe forever. Provided for. Rest in that. Number six. What is there to gain from contentment? Number six. Christian contentment calls attention to the glory of God. Christian contentment calls attention to the glory of God. Now, I, I want to just share some words with you here that was written by Jeremiah Burroughs, a book that's had great influence. And it's, it's a book written right out of these teachings of the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Philippians. But listen how he describes contentment leading to the glory of God. He says, there's a, there's a saying... When you go out into the groves and woods and see the tallness of the trees and their shadows, it strikes a kind of awful fear of deity in you. And when you see the vast rivers and fountains and deep waters, that strikes a kind of, that strikes a kind of fear of a God in you. But he said, do you see a man who is quiet in tempest and who lives happily in the midst of adversities? Why do not you worship that man? He thinks him a man worthy of such honor who will be quiet and live a happy life, though in the midst of adversities. And Burroughs writes, The glory of God appears here more than in any of his works. There is no work which God has made, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the world, in which so much of the glory of God appears as in a man who lives quietly in the midst of adversity. You see, when we live quietly in a season like this, when we live with peace in a season like we're in right now, when we live calm instead of anxious in a season like this, the only way it can be explained is we must be trusting in some kind of sufficient Savior other than our circumstances around us. You see, contentment calls attention, not to me, because none of us can find it in ourselves. It calls attention to God himself, to a heavenly father who's the only one that can give us this contentment, the basis for contentment. And the last one, what's to gain from contentment? Christian contentment builds a defense against temptation. Christian contentment builds a defense against temptation. Verse 9, he says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. What's the answer for that? The answer for avoiding ruin and destruction is not to quit work. It's not to not earn a living. That's, don't read more into this than what I'm saying. 
the answer here is, is to live a godly life, live a holy life, work hard, give your best, use the gifts that God has given you. But realize, ultimately, what we need most and what will satisfy most is what has already been given to us in Jesus Christ. And, and so when you're tempted, what, what is the temptation? The temptation is always lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. Hey, you need more of this. You deserve this. Life is not fair unless you have this. But Christian contentment builds a defense against that. We're able to know what's godly. And when the temptation comes along, we can just say to the devil, no, I'm good. I'm good. Or maybe not, I'm good. We say, no, he's good. He's good. And you tempt me with that, and you lure me with that, and you try to trap me with that. No, I already got all that I need in who Christ is and what Christ is doing. You see, contentment builds a firewall in our life against temptation. What's a firewall? In construction terms, uh, you have a four-hour firewall in a construction zone. That means that uh, fire takes four hours to burn through that wall before it can get to the treasures on the other side. And what contentment does is it raises a firewall that temptation has to burn through before it can ever get to the treasures of your soul and heart. So there's a lot to gain from Christian contentment. I love how Paul puts it right at the end. I think it's kind of our conclusion. At the end of Tim, 1 Timothy, Paul comes down to uh, verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. And in the ESV, English Standard Version, it says this, O Timothy. I love the passion of that. Oh, Timothy. It's, and he says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been deposited into your account. Do you know that the word Timothy comes from two words? First part meaning honor. Second part theos meaning God. Honor God. I think Paul is saying to Timothy, oh, Timothy, listen. Dear son in the faith. With your life, live up to your name. Honor God. Why? Why honor God? Why be content? Because God has deposited into your life evidence of the great riches of Christ. He's already told him, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, listen. Godliness with contentment is great gain. May God bless you with the incredible gain of contentment. Let's pray. And as we bow to pray right now, I want to just remind you of these amazing words we're about to sing to close out our time this morning. Listen to these words. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. 
Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Let's celebrate this together. Lord God, give us contentment in our heart as we seek you with our whole heart. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.